0: So the messages out there are all wrong, just like we're saying. They're all wrong coming in looking for assistance as investors or mentorship. I have a lot of partners. I don't need any partners. But if someone came to me and they're like, you know, I'm looking to hustle, I'd be like, ooh, that sounds good. I like that. Like, let's see if it works. It doesn't always work, but I'd rather take a flyer on that than... Just taking, you know, half an hour to have a phone call, which I will never do. Yeah.
1: Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right. Welcome to the Brenneman Blueprint. Got a great episode for you today. I'm joined by Jonathan Green. He's a uh, real estate investor for over 30 years, a broker. He's out there in New Jersey uh, doing really well. And it was, was had chatted with him about uh, some things like about around mindset and just kind of how he set up his, his companies. And it was very, very interesting. So instead of just diving deep on a phone call or something, I want to bring it to everybody on the podcast. So here we are welcome
0: yeah thanks drew for having me it's exciting to be here glad that we got to talk on my podcast but glad to be here on yours as well
1: yeah and i think if you um i mean your podcast is about real estate but you know with the title i mean it's a lot around mindset so maybe let's just since you mentioned it we could start with that off the top if you want what's your? yeah
0: for sure yeah, I mean that my podcast is Zen and the Art of Real Estate Investing and it's about the mindful approach to real estate and I know that's going to be predominantly what we're talking about but I think that you know my approach to real estate investing grew out of uh historical experience because of my background but then I coupled it with what I was doing in my life which was a commitment to mindfulness and practicing my own mindset to just make sure you know I was making the best decisions and I think that I really deep dove on like personal growth, probably only about five years ago, and I'm 52 now. So uh, I did well over the years, but I think I was a little bit more, um, you know, quick to react to things And and having a mindful approach to real estate and real estate investing as a whole, I think creates a perspective that makes it much easier to walk away from deals, which I find to be the biggest power in the entire business of real estate investing
1: so how would you describe the word mindful then because i think you may be your average person they had not may not even be familiar with that so let's just start at the basics
0: yeah sure i mean to me it's like a a hybrid of of calmness and comfortability and confidence i think that they all go together um i think by approaching everything and taking kind of a longer think on it instead of reacting instinctively or being reactive um especially in real estate investing mm-hmm helps you evaluate fully. I also think the confidence part of mindfulness is really important. It provides like a slowing down, but also I know I've taken the time to do the research or to make these decisions however I wanted to. So then when I come to a decision, there's never any waiver. I've kind of always been like that. Like if I I can make a decision, if someone asks me a question, I will always have an answer unless I absolutely have no idea. Um, And I, okay, if I get that wrong, like that's okay, but that's also part of being mindful. I need to be strong enough to make the decision, and then if someone can prove to me that that was the wrong decision, I'm happy to turn courses and do what's best for everybody involved. But yeah, calmness, comfortability, confidence—really, I think go together in mindfulness for me. Slowing down.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, because I, I I know um, one thing that I've always kind of thought I had as a personal advantage was just sort of my my mindset because they and that's why I wanted to get into this where we. Oftentimes people ask like, "How did you do that?" or "What made you think you could do it?" And you know, sometimes, usually, it's the answer is as simple as like, "Why well, the other people are doing it too." I I thought I could do it. Like it wasn't too. And so that um, I, so it's interesting to bring up confidence because I think I I never had like a irrational amount of confidence. Like my first property, it wasn't a hundred unit; it was a two unit. You know, but I figured, you know, a lot of people buy houses like buying a two unit it seems like something you could do. So yeah, that. Uh, maybe you should, what do well, I guess? Let's we should talk about what you do in the real estate space, too. I think maybe before we just keep going on mindsets, people know kind of <laughs> what you do. You're not just a, a th- yeah, thought guru, for sure. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've been investing
0: my whole life, I, I learned it from my dad. Um, so I was five years old, I was looking at foreclosures, climbing through the windows, and uh, learning everything I could from my dad, even before I knew I was learning it. Um, over the years, I stayed active in investing. My sister and I had a bunch of properties that were held by my dad, and when he passed away, they passed to us, and we managed them for a number of years. We still have a few, um, but I've been active in flipping, you know, investing in single-family homes, uh, Airbnb's well before Airbnb existed when we were doing them on Verbo, short-term rentals. Uh, so i've pretty much done everything in the investing space Um, and about 10 years ago i got my license since then i've built three different teams and i'm on my third team now which is uh, again in the on-market world you know as a more mindful approach to building a team trying to coach agents to be the best in the business which then relays to better service for buyers, sellers and investors and we do work with a ton of investors because of my background but we're an on-market team through new jersey and pennsylvania Um, that I run. And I just love real estate. I love houses. You know, I, I get an enormous amount of enjoyment of just looking at houses. It doesn't have to be anything special. I'll find something that I like. And I think to be good at real estate, you have to like houses, you can be you can do well, not loving them. But what we're going to talk about in part of like the mindset of it is, like I, I love this part. I think to be the best at anything, you have to love it, or you can be good at it, but you <laughs> won't be like that much enjoyment. I think I want to get enjoyment out of the things I spend the most time doing. Or why would I do them?
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Where right, you're. It's gonna be hard to work weekends or put in the extra time if you don't. You don't even like the activity, so it's, it's certainly <laughs> yeah. a hindrance. So, yeah, that makes sense. So then, when you were a kid, were you looking at you were looking at houses for fun? Um, you know, with or without your dad, basically then or with most of the time okay nice yeah uh because
0: we would i mean we spent our weekends going to yard sales at every yard sale my dad would make an offer on the house uh he was well ahead of his time he knew everybody this is before the internet he knew everybody at the courthouses so we had all the foreclosure lists uh we would go to the foreclosures knock if they look vacant he if the door wasn't open he would open a window shove me through i'd go open the front door we'd look at the house make an offer um he bought hundreds of properties like that um and he would just he was very uh art my term for 2023 is asset hunting and i think my dad was always an asset hunter he was never you know a spreadsheet warrior even though he was previously worked for the irs um he just looked for things that would appreciate and value and that's what i learned he was a flipper like we flipped all the homes that we lived in uh and i wouldn't say he did it the same way i would do it i liked it, everything perfect and he would more like put gum in a hole but um that's how it was back then and i think he used relationships to get a lot of deals uh and then maintain them and you know not all of them panned out but i think that was his uh, calculated risk and i think for me it's been the same way i've won on most of my deals in my life but sure you know in 2008 i got slammed on a couple and that's just part That's just part of being an investor
1: yeah and so then, and you so you're not not someone who's just gonna quit after you know a couple of deals go go bad two thousand eight I mean, it's funny though i
0: after two thousand eight, I was more worried about my money uh just in general. I was going through a divorce at the time, and the my properties were just sinking, and I had already you know relocated, so properties just weren't selling at what they normally would have. So my mistake that I made in 2008 wasn't really real estate related. It was just that I took all my money out of investments and just left it in cash because I thought I was going to like lose all my money. So I just kind of didn't earn income on the money that I had for a number of years. I just wanted it to sit there, you know, not thinking of like future banking crisis and things like that at the time. Um, But no, I mean, I think I've always steadily been investing, but I've never been a high volume investor You know we've had we carry uh i don't know how many doors at a time because i don't care about doors but um we just carry properties that are good assets and then when we feel that they're at their highest like they were during the pandemic we sold off a bunch of our oldest properties took the capital gains just because you know the market looked good we didn't really want to manage them anymore so when the opportunity presents itself for me as an investor i sell (laughs) i have no emotional attachment to real estate of any kind if the market looks good and i can get out and then take that money and turn it into two properties or get a, a better property that will earn me more or get or make me more on a, on a flip i'll do it at any time without even thinking twice
1: and all in the properties you own they're all how single family houses that you rent out or you have multi-family too or over the years
0: almost every property we've had but for uh some commercial uh options uh, and an industrial complex that we still own uh, part of as lps uh, has all been single family homes it was just we know. Uh, so we did have a, a few different kind of like mini malls and shopping centers. Um, but myself, personally, I don't even buy multifamily. Uh, I like mixed use. I like, you know, hybrid commercial, those things. But yeah, my predominant investments my whole life have been single family. And I would say. You know, beyond flipping uh, and doing Airbnb and long-term rentals, the the most money I've ever made uh, just on transaction by transaction is always on houses that I've lived in, because I know how to buy in an area, I know how long to stay, and then I know when to do the renovations. And I think that's kind of been a thing that, in traditional investing worlds, nobody talks about that. You know, people are trying to acquire assets and still renting, which is fine. I, I think that's actually a smart strategy, also. But I like houses, I like living in nice houses. So I was really good at buying in areas that maybe hadn't, you know, hit the cycle, but I knew where they were going. And I in Florida, I doubled my money, you know, multiple times and and not a very long amount of time, you know, three, four years just by being smart about where you buy. Um, but you know, in 2008, I got crushed in Florida, just like a lot of (laughs) us did, but the houses were great. Market wasn't great.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I can see that. I mean, especially, you know, uh, for a lot of people, I know their strategy as well. I'm going to focus on my investment properties first, a lot of times buying in other markets and then they just keep renting, keep their costs low, but that's a good, that's a good thought, especially if you're in a growing area, you know, you know what to buy and, um, you know, then you can actually enjoy your house too. It makes, make a good return on that. So,
0: yeah, well, I'm, I think the differential is a mindset thing. Cause that's what we're talking about. You know, people think investments and then personal residents. And I think anything that I'm paying money for that has a chance to appreciate is an investment, you know, which is not usually cars cause cars usually go down. But if I'm smart, like, uh, I, I bought a car that had 10,000 miles on it instead of brand new and it's a nice car, but I got it for Whatever fifty or sixty thousand dollars less than it would cost new, because I'm smart and I don't I didn't get it because I need a nice car. It's like I just wanted that, and I think with houses, people's problem is they devalue the fact that your personal residence is probably the biggest investment you'll ever make if that's your first purchase. So why wouldn't you also do like you said? I like the personal enjoyment. The reason why my sister and I started doing short-term rentals like 15, 20 years ago before they were popular is because we like to have houses in areas that we could go use. So we had multiple properties and we would just go to Florida. And then it's like, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to be there all the time. you know. And it wasn't popular. It was more like timeshares and long-term rentals. And for some, we did long-term rentals. But when before it was popular, we started to see Verbo and HomeAway. And we were like, I think we can make more money and we we did great. We had two, you know, we had two home away verbos in the Hamptons that we did phenomenal on for years because in, in vacation markets like that, you know, you clean up during the summer and then you just would long-term rent, long-term meaning like six, six to eight months in the winter and you're getting the best of all worlds and then you can go use it whenever you want.
1: Yeah. And that was in most of those years with those Hamptons rentals then were you, how, how many months a year do you think you had it rented? Uh, I did. Uh, so yeah, the the Hamptons
0: ones we would rent hard short term in the three months of the summer, and then at some point it started to scale. Then it would be more like May, June, July, August, and September would be good, and then we would rent it for six months uh, off season because the Hampton does have a lot of off season traffic. Uh, at the time, it was it was after nine eleven. There was more people moving to the Hamptons from the city, um, so there was options for those six months rentals. But honestly we 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 well outdid what we were spending by just the summer so everything else was really like gravy at the time and it it was a hot market we you know we grew up out there you know for the summers our whole life so again there's lots of places that i've been put in investing where i've been very fortunate my dad worked very hard uh (laughs) he was an attorney i was an attorney he didn't make any money as an attorney he made all of his money in real estate Uh, he provided a background for me. So I definitely had it easier than a lot of investors. But that doesn't make my advice tainted in terms of like, what you can do to create it. Uh, I think that I always treated it like that I was appreciative and not uh, like that. And I wanted to grow it. You know, I think some people can take a box of, you know, money or properties and just lose it or gamble it. And I learned from him not to do that. And that's why having the You know, real estate to me is so cool because you can be fully diversified and just own real estate. You know, financial advisors will tell you, no, no, don't buy real estate, but you can have Airbnbs, you know, you can have commercial, you can have some mixed use hybrid, you can get some multifamilies, you can get some single families. And now, like, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking to, to, you know, put it buy into some syndications uh, and diversify my money, but all through real estate.
1: Yeah, and you could even invest in different markets, you know, too. On top of that, exactly. You know? so then that's been that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. So then, for someone maybe just starting out, I mean, what would you recommend? So you're starting out as a real estate investor. How uh, how if you could, would you just sort of like, here's what you should think. If you could just kind of put that in their ear, what would you say?
0: Uh, I mean, I think that learning is the most important thing in life. I just. I learn everything. I take. I've taken like forty master classes. You know that that website. I've taken like forty, and everyone's like, "Why the hell do you do that?" I'm like, "I just I like to learn stuff." But I learn lots of stuff about business from things that people don't think are going to be like a business class. Um, so I think learning, listening to podcasts, you know, like this, like mine, like Bigger Pockets, is a great way to figure out like, hey, what everybody else is doing. But I think the hardest part when you're a new Uh, Investor whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money is there's just a lot of fake stuff out there And your job is to wade through and talk to people who can tell you like no these people aren't going to try to sell you anything You know, I don't want to be sold ever on anything. I want to look at something make a decision myself And I think it is hard now with the proliferation of social media that it looks like everybody's like crushing it as an investor Let's be honest. It's not true You know, if you say you have a thousand doors, you don't have a thousand doors. You don't own them 100 percent for the most part. So those aren't a full door. And I think that's the problem that's been turned into this glorified thing. But like real estate investing is hard if you want to make money and be good at like being a landlord of just one multifamily is very hard. I don't know what people are thinking in terms of passive income, but that's not it. It's like the least passive investment you can ever make is to be a landlord. Because if you're not taking care of your property, the calls are never going to stop, which means it's not passive. Right.
1: Yeah. You're you end up being everybody's punching bag, too. So that's even, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that makes sense. But then at what point is there a point where you I guess you would never you'd recommend don't don't think about stopping learning, obviously, if you're watching 40 master classes, But then when when would you make the <laughs>
0: I have a problem? So, no.
1: <laughs> but when would you make when would you say I mean, how long would someone maybe educate themselves before? doing their first deal uh because you know or what how would you advise that so i'll keep learning forever but at some point you got to jump in how would you think about that yeah
0: yeah um, so we work with like 500 investors on my on market team and a lot of that is us coaching them exactly the question you're asking and people are ready at all different times you know people could have done the research and be ready and have money to deploy and they'll create a trust relationship with me where they know i have their best interests at mine um so i really think it's about comfortability you'll always hear the words analysis paralysis and real estate investing it, that's not a it's not a real thing it, it's a procrastination method for someone who hasn't gotten the confidence to get to that level that's why they're looking at spreadsheets all day because they know it's not going to work so the more they just oh sorry you know i did 15 it doesn't work even though all the terms and numbers are wrong so i think it's really developing confidence and the hybrid to learning is always in-person meetups and masterminds you know, that's how you grow. We've talked about it on on my podcast. Like, you know, you want to be in a group where there's different levels of investors, because you're not going to learn anything from all what I call baby investors. No offense to new investors. That's just what I call them, because you have to grow out of that. But you also have to be able to provide value to the group above you so that they kind of let you into the club. And I think building relationships with a an actual true mindset to like, hey, let me get to know some flippers in the area. Let me get to know some people who've done syndications, see if I can help them and just just like be a good person to them. And too many people come to um, mentorship or building relationships with an ask and nothing to give. And I think if you do that more and you meet the right people, your scale to what you're asking, you'll be investing earlier because you'll have more confidence and less analysis paralysis because there'll be other people to tell you like that deal sucks. (laughs) Stop trying to make it good. It's not a good deal. You're looking at the wrong
1: things. And you can build those relationships more with like a giving mindset is the takeaway.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think if you look across the board for a lot of us who've done coaching or, or mentorship, there's a lot of people who want help. And they don't realize that they have something to give because you always have time or you have some special set of skills or you're good at data or you're willing to go drive for dollars for someone. There's always a way to connect to investors, you know, as opposed to just saying like, hey, let's meet up for coffee. I don't drink coffee. So it's of no, you know, and I don't like to go out of the house that much <laughs> yeah. unless I'm doing showing. So you have to match people's personality. Um, and I really think that the people that investors who are on the higher end who you're looking to get mentorship from what they want is somebody who's interested in them and their business Everybody likes to talk about themselves. So if you're really, truly interested and you say, hey, can I just ask you like a, a set of questions for a couple minutes? I'm good at this. You know, uh, I was talking about it with Jay Scott on my podcast. And he, he was saying like, hey, if someone can redo my website, like I'll give them like a couple hours. Like that's a that's a huge thing. And people devalue what their own piece of personal resources are. Like if you're an HVAC technician or a contractor, you have something to to add you know, to an investor's business. You you know, you have to use that. And that's where the win-win comes in, where that's the more mindful approach is like, hey, can we both benefit from this relationship instead of just one person on a hard ask and the other person on a deliverable?
1: Yeah. that's great advice. Cause I've I've noticed that with a lot of people where it's like they think they uh they don't they what they offer to like buy you lunch. You know, they think that's like a good uh <laughs> you know like thing in return. It's like, well I you know, I'm buy my own lunches at this point, you know, where that's not as interesting. But yeah, to your point, if you, you know, uh, especially yeah, these days, I like your HVAC idea. If you had any, if you're at all in the construction or property management game, like I'm all, I'm all ears if you want to help us out. So, uh. yeah.
0: And I mean, to your point, like to, to somebody like me, uh, we talk, we're talking about this on a pre-call, but like I, I'm an introvert. So asking to buy me lunch is like, you might as well just ask me to punch me in the face over and over because <laughs> I don't like small talk. You know, that's the same as like someone calling me or having a call. Uh, I don't answer my phone and people find it unusual that I can be successful running a big team. You know, I have 33 agents and growing. We're up to 50 agents and I, you know, multiple states and I'm, you know, running other things, but I do not talk on the phone. My phone message says I'm not going to answer. Send me a text. Everyone who sends me a text will get an answer pretty much right away. But that's the way I communicate because my schedule is booked all day you know like we had this booked for a time i'm on my time frame and then when my time frame is done i have something else booked cuz i book into my schedule insane stuff and this goes to mindset i have showering on my schedule and my my team always laughs at me they're like what are you going to forget to shower <laughs> it's not about that i'm going to forget to shower it's that i want to know what time i need to shower so i can get to the next thing cuz some days i don't want to shower right away cuz i don't i'm not in the business where i'm going to an office i can really customize my day um, so I, I think people find like, you know, these things are, are odd about other people, but like you're saying, not everyone wants to go lunch or, or, or wants to get a coffee, uh, or just wants to freely give information. There's gotta be something there, you know, to make it worthwhile. And, and sometimes it's just in the presentation. Hey, uh, I was trying to figure out how to flip a house. I went to these resources. I'm down to X and Y. I just want to take five minutes of your time. I just need to decide on these two. Can you help? that's like a great ask because you've just set it up on a silver platter. This is what I need from you. It'll only take this much. And then you can say like, I have also something to give you, but you know, if you just have an ask, tightening it up to like a really solid question will definitely get somebody to answer.
1: Yeah. that. Yeah. Or I get messages where people ask, can I ask you a question? And now it's like, there's uh, too many things yeah. to answer. Now I say I have to say, yeah, like you could have just fired away. And that. Just yeah, ask the yeah. question. I, I just that's like every
0: DM on Instagram. I literally was yeah. just reading that, like, you know, four DMs yesterday where, hey, Jonathan, is this the best place to ask you a question? And the first thing I thought, just like you in my head is, why didn't you just ask the question? Yeah. If I see it and I want to answer, I'll answer it. Why are you asking me? It's
1: just silly. It's, 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 a, it, it's you're adding to double the steps now. Uh, it's, or maybe triple, depending yeah. you might have another question, you know. But you, it comes from old sales training, and
0: old sales training was get as many yeses as possible. But I'm not a salesperson, no matter what I'm doing, even though I'm in sales, or it's not, I have no interest. I want to build a relationship. So why would I ask someone if I can ask them a question? It's nice to ask someone, do you have the time for something? But like, you know, I'd want to know like full out, like, hey, this is what's coming my way. So if I ever do set a phone call, it's on my calendar. It's set for a time and I tell them the hard stop and I'm off at the hard stop. But I do predominantly Zooms. If it's worth a phone call, it's worth a Zoom to me. And 99, 99% of phone call requests are not worth a phone call to me because I can answer it via text. And in, in like five seconds.
1: Yeah. Mark Cuban has the same strategy. I don't know if you ever heard him talk about that, but it's basically the same thing. <laughs> yes. Email him. Otherwise, he's not responding. And then he'll email back complete strangers like, you know, in 10 minutes, like, you know, like, yeah, someone, the, 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 someone will send their company to him and be like, no, nah, I'm not into it. And they're like, holy crap, he responded. Tim Ferriss is the same way. He said it
0: multiple times. He's like, if you send me a stupid email, someone's going to get in the middle and not read it. If you send me a well thought out email that has like a really tightened up question, he's probably going to look at it himself. You know, and I think that people have been coached the wrong way and social media and all of these things are turning people into all the same people with the same ass and that we buy houses for cash. And it's just not that's not. I just want to build relationships. Everyone would be better served and make more money and be happier by trying to build good relationships. But some people want, you know, a a quick fix. And that's why they get into these cycles of asking the same thing. It's the same thing. Can I buy you coffee? Well, I don't drink coffee.
1: Yeah. Or maybe you don't, (laughs) you don't care about selling it for cash. Maybe you got lots of time and uh, want uh, the highest price, you know, or, or wait, you know, I need you to wait. I don't care about a quick closing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but that I mean every bandit sign just says quick for cash. Ninety percent of home sellers don't care if it's a cash buy. They have, like you said, another thing. They don't even know where they're going. What do they care about? The cash they've owned the house for 50 years. They're gonna make plenty of money. The house is in you know, old people shape, which means mechanicals are good. It just hasn't been renovated. So they don't they don't need cash. Right. It's not attractive to 90% of the things. So the messages out there are all wrong, just like we're saying, they're all wrong coming in looking for Assistance as investors or mentorship. I have a lot of partners. I don't need any partners. But if someone came to me and they're like, you know, I'm looking to hustle, I'd be like, Ooh, that sounds good. I like that. Like, let's see if it works. It doesn't always work, but I'd rather take a flyer on that than Just taking, you know, half an hour to have a phone call, which I will never do.
1: Yeah, no, makes sense. And then and also like a showering tip. Definitely during COVID, I was trying to shower uh, around lunchtime as like a break because you you could I just roll out of bed, started working. And then uh, I ate when I got hungry and I showered almost as like a break. And uh, I got a lot more. I actually got a lot more work done. No commute. And then you don't don't waste time prepping. Use the prep time, you know, getting ready for the day as a uh, break of sorts, you know. So that uh, I I, I kind of like that. So
0: I don't think people take their schedule seriously. Like my calendar is booked morning to night. If I, I don't want to ever have to tell somebody I can't do something that I agreed to do. And I say no to almost everything. So if it's on my schedule, it's happening, barring something crazy. And using Google, I can just slide things that time-wise need to be moved to later. So there, there's availability to move stuff in, but it's just not going to be you know, I, it just if you just take phone calls in general, it's just very silly for someone to just call my phone. Why wouldn't I be working? My phone rings from morning to night. Why wouldn't I be working when my phone rang? And agents say that all to me, I don't understand how do you do real estate without calling. I'm like, just text me any question you have. I can answer it. I'm on Zoom like four or five hours a day. Sometimes I'll answer the text. No problem. Like, this is part of multitasking. I'm not taking away a lot of the Zooms. I have to be there. I'm not a full participant all the time, but I can't, I don't want to talk on the phone. Uh, one more thing about the phone, yeah, though, because we were yeah. talking about this. The, the most, in real estate, there's a ton of conversations that go undocumented, and I'm not comfortable with that. Whenever someone says to me, hey, can we talk about the on the phone about this negotiation? It's not going to be documented. No one's going to know what was said. Everyone's going to say something else was said, and I don't like that. I can't tell you how many times in any form of a real estate deal, somebody said that I said something or did something or didn't do something or say something, and then I just pulled the email receipt or the text receipt, sent it over, never heard another word. So I document everything I do. So if I have to take a phone call that they won't allow me to record, I immediately follow up with an email that says, hey, Bob, just just wanted, that was great talking to you. Here's the contents of our conversation. And if they don't respond to that, then it it all is true, and you can use that later. Again, it's my legal attorney coming out.
1: Yeah, like
0: (laughs) look, real estate deals on the on the on the larger end on one issue could you know a deal could rise and fall. You could save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars by documenting something that someone wanted to talk to you on the phone about because they know it wasn't going to be recorded. You know, that's why people, hey, can I talk to you about this offer before I make it? I already know that the offer sucks because you're trying <laughs> to explain something to me in advance. Just send me the offer. If it's good, I'll be like, oh, nice offer. Other than that, I don't really need the story. It's a
1: business, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Or they're trying to feel you out for information, too. And it's almost exactly. better to not not give it to them. Like, no, nah, man, just email me. So, oh, I mean, I'm a vault.
0: I know they're not going to get it. It's a time spent thing for me. I don't want somebody ask. It, they can ask me in. A text, you know, or an email. And that's the mode that I prefer to communicate on. And some people's like, I mean, as a coach, I'm always saying like, you want to communicate it as a salesperson on whatever that other person is most comfortable with. But even my people who clients who like the phone, I train them to like the text more because I'm more available by text. I'll get them all the answers they need in a quicker time. And they can look at it whenever they want, instead of waiting. And they say, Oh, I'd like to, can we have a call? And I'm like, Next call slot's, you know, Thursday at three and they're like, okay, I'll text you. Yeah, that's what I do. Training, and it works every time. Training them. Yeah. <laughs> for my own good though. And that's a, that's a mindset and a mindfulness practice that, you know, I have boundaries and my boundaries are my schedule and the way that I use my time. And if I want to take a one hour aimless walk, cause that's what works for me. I'm not going to, I don't want to be bothered when I'm on the walk.
1: And then I guess how, I think you had mentioned you have 500 investor clients. So on the, on the brokerage side, how did you, how did you build that up? I mean, that's a a huge number and I guess what, how did it start? How how to get to 500? Um, great question. I think it's good
0: for people who run on market businesses and for people who run investors groups to know, uh, it really started just on bigger pockets. I mean, I've been investing my whole life, but i found bigger pockets, you know, maybe like 10 years ago when I had got my license kind of at the same time and I was just reading the forums and I was like, I know a lot of these answers. So I just started answering people's questions. Uh, so for probably six consecutive years, every day i would have on my schedule bigger pockets time i would go on there and i would just answer questions i would look in newbie flippers real estate investing and i would just answer i would make sure that i was on for 15 minutes and that i made five replies every day and i never once in still to this day have ever made an ask of anybody uh there and that kind of mushroomed into you know me doing more speaking or creating these two podcasts that i have Uh, And then when I had the on-market team, just a lot of investors come to me because they know we understand small-scale, multi-large-scale, multi-commercial, you know, just investment ideas, but it's not for everybody. And I think the reason why I was able to get so many contacts and build that group is because I will say no, and I will tell people that's a stupid deal or don't do that, someone's trying to fleece you. They called me the deal killer in my early days because people would send me the deals and I would look at it in two seconds and be like, it's garbage. They're like, but the spreadsheet looks good. I'm like, I just pulled it up on Google Maps. You're like next to a train track. Have you even looked at Google Maps? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't look at Google Maps. Well, out-of-state investing will kill you if you're not looking
1: at Google Maps. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's – I know there was – that's happened to me where I, if I look at the spreadsheet 1st like, this looks pretty good. Then you pull it up on the map. You're like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> it's the way by the dumpsters behind the shopping center. Next to a yeah. firehouse. Yeah, I yeah,
0: know. That's a huge fail, and I think new investors, you know, they're getting sold on, you know, this, you know, Midwest investments because the deals are good and the numbers do look good. But you need to do your due diligence. I mean, that's just that's just practice. I don't I don't even use spreadsheets. I mean, I use spreadsheets for every part of my life, but I don't use them for deals. I just use them for flips, and it's not to uh, calculate my uh, win in the beginning. It's just to keep track of what I'm doing. I, I know what I'm buying. I'm buying assets. If the asset is good, I'd not really you know, too worried about it. And again, though, I've been fortunate. I don't have to focus on cash flow. I like cash flow, but I like appreciation more because it's like a surprise. So you then know, I did well as an investor. Two years later, I get $200,000. Like that sounds good to me.
1: I can wait. And then for these deals, you're buying them with your own money uh, solely or? Yeah. Okay. Because that, uh, yeah, that's a luxury. That's that makes a lot of sense where it's your own money. So there's not anyone to send it to it to look at like how this will go. It's you're you're buying really sort of a, you know what a a single family uh duplex would sell for in that area where the market is it's a good relative buy and then your thought is i don't need a spreadsheet from here it's it's a good price and exactly
0: yeah i mean and again that's another thing i mean i appreciate you know that i was fortunate enough I, i was a cash investor for first 30 you know some odd years of my life uh after i got divorced i still had an idea of what i could do with money Uh, most of the deals i've ever bought are just cash deals and then i have a an asset based line of credit which is not you know i don't need collateral for it based on other holdings and i can just deploy that the rates are just too high now um and now with the way that my team runs you know i can get regular mortgages for properties as well and just put 20 30 percent down reduce the rate Um, but like i don't even own that many properties right now because i sold a bunch during the pandemic and now it's kind of like now's the time where I'm looking at the landscape and waiting to decide really how i want to deploy and i think at this age 52 it's more attractive to me to you know put some amount into a bunch of different syndications and then also do some one-offs but i don't i don't like being a landlord so that's done it's not interesting to me and i don't want to i don't need to hire property managed i teach all of my you know multifamily investors how to self-manage so they do you know they save 10 you know on that
1: yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I think for your strategy, if you're looking at syndications, you should be, you should, a lot of them, they're so short term in nature where I'm not sure, uh, like a lot of the rentals that you bought, how long have you hold them? Like on, on average, I uh, guess
0: there's properties we sold during the pandemic that we owned, you know, as a family for 30 years, you know, and they were Solid assets. The industrial park that we own in Bridgehampton. My sister and I both own ten percent, but it's a very big, uh, high-priced asset. Um, they just—it's too good of a property to ever let go of. You know, we we had a deal for someone to acquire it during the pandemic, and it, it fell apart. But the payout was going to be great, and that was like that was something that my dad bought with a bunch of partners. You know that was just like as like weird part of Bridgehampton and now it's like right next to the town I mean the value on it's crazy and I think I learned that from him as patience. you know even when I'm flipping you know flipping is a short-term mechanism for you know income income acquisition but you know things go wrong all the time and people who aren't savvy will rush to get to the finish make bad decisions put out a crappy product You know, I had a a flip that took 22 months because of fights I had with the town. Uh, Did I make a lot of money? No, I barely made any, but I love the property. So my commitment is to the property and to turning out something that's, you know, a good asset, which again goes back to like a mindful approach to this. I'm not uh, again. I mean, I like money. I, I, I like earning money because it can provide for my kids. But it's it's not always the end game. I'm in it to make income. But, you know, if you've done it long enough. The difference between fifty and sixty thousand on one deal is, is not that big of a deal. In the short term, it is, but not over the long term.
1: But that's that's pretty profound, though, to that statement. Where uh, oftentimes people ask about like how stressed I am, and it surprises them that I'm not. I'm, I'm usually not stressed. Where and which would surprise people because like my. I talked to let's say my dad and he was a shop teacher and and he, he so he asked a lot of like maintenance related questions where like i'll buy like a hundred unit deal and he'll be like how many toilets are there like that's like a lot of problems <laughs> right and like and a good and i'm like now. Well, you know what? I don't fix the toilets, though. See, like he's in that mindset, like he he knows how yeah. to do all that and he would end up doing it himself and kind of like he would have bought one rental and then would have done everything for it and kind of like, oh, this is like enough work. I think I'm good. Where I never yeah. I never got it, got into that. He taught me how to do most of that stuff. I've built decks with him and hung door like I've done a lot of that, but I know that I will make more money not being the toilet repair guy, even though. Yeah, I can I repair my own toilet when it breaks. It's faster than calling somebody. But, you know, so that's like profound, though, because why I would say uh, around the stressed or not thing is like uh, the way I've described it is I zoom out. Like I see the bigger picture where yeah, have that toilets leaking. I don't really I don't freak out about it. We have uh, repairs and maintenance in the budget. There's going to be things that go yeah. wrong or, you know, we've owned some deals for they were like 10 years old when we bought them. Then they're, we've had them for 10 years, and now the air conditioners and furnaces are breaking, uh, like they're wearing out, and so is the roof. Well, guess what? Those things last, you know, furnaces normally, though air conditioners, those last like around 10 years. So somehow we got 20 years out of it, and then roofs are, you know, 20, 30 years. And so it's like that's just how it is. Where So when I get a call that our roof's leaking and we need to repair it or it's probably smarter to replace it, I'm not freaking out about it. I go, yeah, that's that's how it works
0: cost of doing business. I mean, another good example for that. I love what you said is that it? look, if if you put into if say you put 20% into a real estate deal, whatever it is, you get a mortgage, you're doing the, you know, you're doing a flip or however you want to do it. Uh, and then it turns out, like, you're going to lose money on the deal. And people start going to this, like, conniption mode. They, they, they made bad, you know, they made bad decisions. They over-renovated or they miscalculated the IRB or the market shifted. The first thing that I always say is how, how, you know, how are you looking at things? And to be honest, I'm not a glass half full person. I've just become a mindful person. The way that I look at it is, but you're going to get the deposit back. Oh, you're going to lose $10,000. Great. Well, you're going to have your deposit money back to deploy on another asset. So why don't you just do it quicker, you know, get the money done. Sometimes you just have to take a loss, take it, take the money that you have in it. Are they all going to be, you know, money back losses? Uh, They should be if you're doing it the right way and you have enough down. That's why, you know, putting little down or over leveraging with hard money is what's going to get you into a problem. You know i i like you know i like the principles of rich dad poor dad in terms of leverage and what people say but like i've never been high on leverage because i'm scared i don't in 2008 everyone got killed on their leverage and i'm not someone who wants to look into that i like the principle of it but i also you know to me the worst thing would be to be someone who claims that they have a hundred doors and all 100 doors are operating at like a hundred dollars a month cash flow To someone say like that's a lot of money like they're making a lot of money Uh uh-huh well when one furnace breaks at one property and it's eighty five hundred bucks you just lost cash flow on 10 properties so now what are you looking at and how much do you own of the doors to make it worth it that's just not enough of a profit because those hundred dollar cash flow properties that are being offered in the midwest are you know they're fully renovated but you're not there's no appreciation there on a lot of those because they're they're now the hot they're now the most expensive one in the town, and you paid up for it, which I'm all for. I like buying renovated properties. I don't always want to do the fix, but like you have to know whether it's going to appreciate or not. Because if you're just steady cash flow at a hundred dollars, that's never going to be worth my money unless there's big appreciation on the back end.
1: Yeah, you have a lot of especially if you're you're coaching people to uh, you know teaching them like to. Also manage the property so they can learn and you know save money. Like you got to think about your hassle factor too. somewhat, especially if it's you know on this where where a lot of the deals we bought part of it you know we were you know they were partnerships with uh, two families that I had met, and so we were also the ones doing the work. And it was kind of we felt like it's treated like it's just our money. Like they said they'll invest yeah. this, so we we factored in the hassle factor too, where it's like we could go buy two nice deals. Maybe each one makes a little bit less than like something we have to renovate. But we could just buy two bigger, nicer deals. The percentage returns might be a little smaller. But it's probably going to end up making the same amount of money because we went into like a little bigger deal that was nicer. And there was a lot less work. And I have like a really good friend who does only renovation apartment deals. And every time I see him, he's like, Drew, you're so smart, the stuff you buy. Like I need to figure out how to do that. And and I didn't really know what he meant. And then we we are uh, renovating – a 96 unit right now in phoenix and every time i go there to look at the renovation i kind of laugh to myself i'm like i see why he uh said that you know because we're you're going back and forth and then you know contractor to contractor you know a lot of little yeah, issues but also up.
0: yeah your scale on that, that on the rent side is like oh you go from 700 to 750 which over over the 96 units is great but like if you just look at flipping, flipping's exactly what you're talking about. You know, if you flip in like at least in my area, if you, we used to flip in like a 300K buy-in and you'd put in 60 in renovation and you'd make 60 you'd sell for around 420. But then conversely, if you start to buy in like high fives, you're going to put in maybe like 80. But now you're going to start to make like 140. And if you go higher, which we've been experimenting, the last one we bought, we bought for 560, 565 or something like that. We put in like almost 200, but it sold for 930. So your scale and flipping is like if you can buy in higher, you're going to make more. You're going to spend more, but you're going to make more. And that's where it is. You know, someone's seeing long term. What can you have access to? Uh, and then it's a question of partners. How well do you know the partners? Is it going to work? And you know that from, you know, your history. It's tough. I, I've never been big on partners. Something usually goes wrong. So I'm just more comfortable um I think that no two partners have the same risk tolerance ever exactly. So for me, my risk tolerance, I just want to be responsible for myself. If I mess up, I can handle it on myself but I don't want to mess up for someone else and that's why being an agent is so important to me uh, for investors, I don't want to mess up their future. So we do we will not write offers on a lot of properties. you know people uh, they want to do an FHA house hack, uh, multifamily. Uh, and we know it's not going to pass FHA inspection. we're like we can't we can't write it if they want it's sold as is you can't do that with an FHA and they don't understand why and for a time they'll be like, oh well we're not going to work with you if you just won't write any offer and we're like man I mean no problem because the offer is never going to get accepted so why why would I write it It doesn't help us it doesn't help you We have to look for properties that match what your funding cycle looks like and what's going to be a good buy for you if you're buying with FHA purposefully and you only want to put that much money down you know 3.5 percent, You don't want to spend a ton in repairs right away you know if not then get a 203k loan that's different then you factor the renovation in but you know that's it there's so much investing advice out there it's very hard to find the like the actual truth when you go to see properties and it is hard for new investors to find a realtor to take a chance on them we talked about that on on my podcast you know you're 19 you're like hey how do i present this and you had a full presentation and the realtor was like okay this kid knows what he's talking about and that's what we're talking about with mentorship. Like, you need to come to the table with a reason to do business together, and if it's good enough, you'll you'll make those relationships.
1: Well, what's crazy with that? When you asked me that question, like, how did you get a realtor to take you seriously when you were nineteen? I I never thought about that, and I don't know if I don't know if anyone's right. ever asked me before. You know, you're you're from that side of the table, so you thought, oh wow, yeah. I don't know if I take this guy seriously. I, but you probably would have just picked up the vibe that like I was serious because I never. I, uh, it never crossed my mind. Like I need to prove anything here. Uh, like they, like this is what they do. I'm a buyer, They're a broker. It never yeah, crossed but my so mind. So you,
0: you're different though. You were, you were, you had it prepared. You were presentable. You knew exactly what you wanted. You knew the dialogues. What happens, uh, there's a million, you know, quasi investors out there and they'll come to us and say like, well, I want to write, you know, 10 offers a week uh and just uh, you know all low balls i said i mean why would i do that that's a horrendous use of my time you want me to write out you want me to take my time which is unaccounted for because we only get paid at closing and write 100 offers for you to win one that's a i'm i'm just not gonna do that and that's not what agents who are in the business too? They just want people who are ready to grow. You're a perfect example, though. If I see someone who's young, and I have lots of young investors, and now we're at two, three, four properties, eight doors, I know in my first conversation whether they're take it serious. Is are they prepared for the conversation? You were prepared for the conversation with the realtor. A realtor's probably like okay and smart realtors have investors as clients because they can do multiple deals a year home buyers do one deal every 10 years i mean investors are way better clients uh for real estate investors but they also know 100 agents so unless you can provide something better an investor is always going to be looking for a better deal or or better cut on their flip
1: and yeah that but i swear i never thought of that in all those years until you asked me and i was like i don't know (laughs) i must have just must have just kind of felt it like it's got uh you know, they knew I was serious. I never, but that's kind of the right, um, you know, just to kind of, uh, you know, in terms of where my mindset was at at the time it was, I wasn't, um, I, I definitely wasn't overconfident. Like, oh yeah, I just can buy anything. I'll crush it. But I wasn't like, I guess, you know, insecure about it. Like, oh, Hey, I'm a teenager still. And I, this or that it was just like, I have the money. I want to buy a place. Let's do it. You know, I wasn't not overthinking it
0: you had, you built a business as a teenager, you know, by selling things. So you, you kind of had the right mindset to go in. And I think like every conversation or relationship build is always, again, it's based on the relationship. And I, you know, I've studied NLP. I know as a coach what to look for, and I can interpret what people are saying without them having to say all the words. So exactly like you're saying, you probably presented as somebody who had their crap together. You know, and I think that everybody wants that. And and, and I, I like people who are open to coaching. Uh, but yeah, at some point, you want everyone to be able to pull the trigger. But, you know, on the agent side, you have to help them and be an advisor to help them to get pull the trigger, not just show them any property so they buy it. That's not going to help them long term. You don't want them buying bad investments right. and you're not going to have return clients. The best thing about investors is they could be your client for 20 years if you do them right every time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And keep buying deals what other so I mean, the big takeaways I have, I mean, in terms of how you built your uh, on on market, you know, client base is actually really it was showing up on bigger pockets every day, doing the same thing, being consistent with that. And then in person events, those were the two
0: yeah i mean we do in-person events now the first wednesday of every month and branded the same name as, as the podcast and there's no pitching no lenders are involved it's all investors connecting talking about properties there's no presentation i don't speak or anything we just like have a good time i have a lot of partners who will sponsor those events um and then i think more than that it was just giving away information for free which is what podcasts are about you know webinars and all those things You know, one day down the road, may I create like a weekend event or something? Sure. But it was never going to be like cost exclusive. I just think that I, I like being on podcasts like this. I like having my two podcasts, uh, because I can freely give out information that people can go listen to in the car or at the gym or walking down the streets. Um, I've listened to so many podcasts and got so many information, you know, from them that I think it's such a great resource for people to learn, but yeah, these, they're all together. And I think if you're, if you're building relationships the right way, you're going to have much more success, much quicker than you thought. If you're always focused on, you know, how you can help other people, where you can fit in, you know, where you can be and asking people really smart questions about themselves that maybe not everybody asks. how'd you get all your money? Nobody wants to answer that. That's too long of a thing. Like to ask me about something specific. And I really, I like to answer that.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then I guess so if someone was starting out today, would would you if someone wanted to do just exactly what you're doing, would you say just if you could do the same playbook or have things evolved where instead of doing bigger pockets for them, do something else or something online versus in person? What, what would you say if you're going to do it all over again right now?
0: Yeah, it's a hybrid of what we've talked about. The answer is yes, you can do it, but you have to be very diligent in being able to figure out who's true and who's not. Uh, because you can go on BiggerPockets forums and ask questions, but they're not. Everyone's not going to answer for the right reasons. The cool thing about BiggerPockets is you can see how many upvotes somebody has as a person. So I was always looking for more upvotes on somebody. You know, they're adding value to the community because they have a lot of upvotes more than you know their posts. That's like a differential, and then in terms of meetups, <coughs> I would only go to real estate meetups where they don't allow lenders or ancillary personnel. I don't want to get pitched at a meetup. I really want to learn, and I wouldn't go to ones where there's presentation because why are you giving a presentation? You have something to sell, you know. We're I I'm an agent. I have a giant team. I'm never asking anyone if they want to do business with us. They know where I am and they know that I'm an expert in the field, so they'll they'll come and ask if they want. But I, I've worked with plenty of clients as friends who had other agents and they'd say like, Hey, can you come look at this property? But like, I have an agent and I would go, I would give them my opinion. And when I did that out of just being you know, nice, they were my friends. They eventually would come over and work with me, not every time, but because I was telling the truth and the other agent was blowing smoke to get them to buy the deal. So you can recreate my playbook, start on bigger pockets, be careful, focus on local and then find local events. And make sure that the local events have no pitches and that you if you go to one event and you just meet one person who's an investor who you get along with and you can get them in your phone that's like a great use of an hour or two hours like wow you just met someone and i think that's how we've built our events they're just there for people to meet each other Uh, and through the groups we started them during the pandemic they were all on zoom um we did about a hundred deals just during the pandemic through our new jersey and, and philadelphia group Just because people got more comfortable saying, like, hey, that you were saying it before in the pre-call, like everyone's an investor. They don't have any type of look or thing. They're everybody. So you see, like, oh, wait, that that kid's doing deals now. And then you're like, I can do this. And you're only going to know that if you get off from behind the computer, go meet some people in person and say, like, wow, these people are all really doing these deals
1: yeah and then they'll just look like regular people too you'll notice that where (laughs) exactly uh you know they're just like oh i thought they'd be wearing like a suit and tie or something and it's like no i um yeah one of the brokers that uh here in chicago he used to work at the lamborghini dealer and he him and his buddy they're always so surprised how the guy showed up to buy the lambos and they're like Uh, t t-shirt every time yeah they're wearing like a white t-shirt and like some puma track pants and it's like
0: Yeah. Right. That was my dad. Yeah. That was my dad. I grew up. My people would come meet my dad uh, and they'd be like, who's this guy? I'm like, what are you talking about? That's my dad. We look (laughs) just like each other. He's like, but he's just wearing tennis shorts and like a tank top. I'm like, yeah, that's what he wears. What are you talking about? Like, I thought he'd be in a a suit because he's like an attorney and a real estate investor. I'm like, my dad barely ever gets in a suit. It's probably because he has to go like handle like a traffic ticket for a friend. Other than that, (laughs) like he just wants to be comfortable And I think that's what's important to know. There is no, look, the coolest thing about real estate investing is anybody can learn to do it. Capital is the important part. You know, that's why you shouldn't leave your W-2 job, earn as much money as you can so that you have enough to deploy instead of coming in hot with no money, trying to figure out how to do deals with no money down. That's just going to get you in a hole. Does it work for some people? I'm not even convinced that it that it really does from the beginning. You have to have something or a partner to help you through. You're not going to go do you know 10 deals wh- having never had any income. That's yeah. just not realistic.
1: I mean, I think you I think you can do those like high leverage deals, but the always the caveat is you would need to have a lot of reserves because some of them will be negative <laughs> cash flow, and yeah. and then also um, they you need to be really careful on like what's the interest rate when you're talking because i think a lot of you were talking about hard money loans and things kind of a while back that's a totally different animal than that three and a half percent down fha program where you're just getting a normal first mortgage rate so you're not yeah you know so like there's a lot of nuance there but sure if somebody could uh use the fha program and have their neighbor lend them the three and a half percent you could make that work if if you have other reserves odds are this thing's not going to cash flow at all for a while but you, I, you, you can't with the pmi that's yeah. what's so hard
0: about fha but yeah i mean if you look at you know sub two creative finance seller finance even wholesaling in general these are all hybridized portions of how you can do stuff but you still need to be capitalized the people who are buying the most sub two and seller finance and creative financing deals all have a lot of money because they have the leverage to get it done sometimes people can get started i love the idea uh, of sub two, I, I love it. I I haven't done it because I don't really want to take over people's mortgages. Yeah,
1: su- sub two like, is you're shorthanding that as subject to and the mortgages. So yeah, you're, yeah. You're you're assuming a loan, but it's uh, you know, in commercial real estate, you're allowed to do that, and that's like out in the open. Like I could buy that right. industrial potentially and assume your loan, but in uh with uh regular houses it's like uh on the down low for lack of a better it's murky it's murky but so is wholesaling i mean i think like real estate
0: is i've always tried to be transparent in everything that i do and i think that's what helps me get deals and also blows up a lot of deals because i want to know the information like just tell me if you have an oil tank i don't why just just like tell me i'm i just found it like we found it like you're going to pretend like it's not there well somebody's got to dig it out it's going to be you You know, like, it's just, it's the quick buck, you know, thing. And that's why some people who try to get in with no money down are going to get themselves behind the eight ball instead of like earning money, learning, finding partners, just be a tiny participant in a deal and learn something. You know, I think that that's more attractive to me than, you know, being brand new and calling to try to on a hundred sub twos a day, hoping that you can take over a mortgage when again, okay, well now you're in control of the property and now the furnace broke, who's paying? You assume the mortgage; they're not paying for the new furnace. So, like, they people forget that things inside houses are expensive: furnaces, roofs, you know, all these things, heating systems, everything. One water leak when you're not paying attention that could cost you twenty thousand dollars. So, you know, there. What do you do then? Those are the ones that all come up on wholesale because yeah. somebody got <laughs> messed up.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's I had an episode on how to do your first deal. And that was like step one is you need to you need to get some money. This is called real estate investing. You need money to invest. Exactly. You know, and then you'll hear Look about up the definition
0: yeah. of investing. It's because you have capital to invest. Can you invest your time? Sure. But not a lot of people are going to give you an asset for your time.
1: Yeah. And then wholesaling. I mean, that's cool. But that's essentially like a job. You're you know, you find it and then you get a, a fee. That's just like, you know, that's not exactly investing it. either. Cool. Well, yeah, okay. let's let's leave it there. How do people get in touch with you? What's, uh, where do they go? How does that work? Well, given what I've said, I'm very hard to get
0: in touch with. The best way to get in touch with me, <laughs> I always look in my DMs on Instagram, which is trustgreen with an E at the end. Um, and I wade through them. I, I even look through the ones that get siphoned off to just see if someone was making like a, a real ask in there. Um, and then if they want to email me, they can email my uh, team success manager, crystal at info at streamlined with a D dot properties. And then she wades through my email again. And, you know, this is what we're talking about is mindful practice. And I think some people, you know, want direct access. Some people give out their phone numbers. I'm never going to answer the phone and I get 10,000 texts a day. I like spam and everything. And uh, I'm easy to reach, I think, just by thoughtful communication, I will respond. And DMs is a great way. I contact a lot of people uh, via DMs, other investors, you know, real estate per- personnel. And I think like that's kind of the the modern way. But yeah, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram at Trust Green. Uh, the podcast is Zen and the Art of Real Estate Investing. And the new one is The Art of Agency, a launch pad for realtors. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find on social, TikTok. I have a big YouTube channel as well with a bunch of videos that are there for real estate investors and real estate personnel um, to help. But thanks for having me on, Drew. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: no, I, yeah, this is a good one. Good one. And I mean, most people, they're not talking so much about mindset. I think I said that at the outset, but it's, you know, it's more about like just the exact tactics or a lot of just like, uh, uh, just like pump up stuff, like you should do it, it's great, you know, like you'll make a lot of money, cash flow, and there's like a lot of buzzwords, appreciation, tax breaks, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. 1031, you know, or they just but you're not really how do you think about that, how do you do it, and you know, so this was a good one to think about because we you were saying a lot of the same things that I've said where you want to zoom out, you know, think long term, you know, have like you know, understand what's important to you, where you know, and, and then what, what works for you, what doesn't, and then. It's okay walking away from a deal if it doesn't meet that, for example.
0: That's your power in real estate. Your power isn't all the money that you have because other people have the same amount of money or more all the time. Your power is the ability to walk away and say, you know what? I'm good. You know, you want to go up $1,000? I'm going down $1,000. That's how I negotiate. That when we have a deal and then they want to go up, I go down the same amount. And I'm not playing around. I'll lose the deal. I just don't care. There's just There's houses everywhere. Sure. Are there a lot that are not, you know, the 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 market is not, you know, full right now. We wish we had more properties for our buyers, but like there's literally houses everywhere, like in most places that we live, maybe more spread out in the Midwest. But like I live in the densest state in America, New Jersey, like there's other things to buy. It's not the only house that needs a structural renovation. Like I'm good. I'll, I'll find something else. And I I, I think it's important. But yeah, I mean, if you're trying to help people create this blueprint for, you know, real estate investing mindset is a really important part of it. You're you're always going to be second guessing your deals and worried the whole time. And people like you and I, I'm never worried, not because I like have no emotions, although I don't have that money. It's because I'm confident I've I've done the research, you know, I review everything. And then when I go to make a deal and I put the money down, I know that's the deal that I want, you know, and if they try to mess around with it. I'm also happy to give it up. (laughs) Yeah. No
1: problem. Yeah. I mean, any negotiation, it's like whoever wants it the least is the winner. So,
0: yeah. But I I, I mean, last thing, I mean, I learned that, you know, as a prosecutor, I was a prosecutor for uh, six years in Florida and negotiation, you know, if you just listen to, you know, Chris Voss never split the difference. I mean, negotiation is tactics. And like you said, the less you want it, the more someone else is going to want it. So it's just about trying to figure out where the pain points are. But if you have can create the ability in yourself to walk away from deals, you're much more powerful. They'll always go to another offer. It will always fail. And then they'll come back to you. Maybe not always, but that happens to me all the time. I tell them what's going to happen. You're going to try to sell this to a baby investor or a a regular home buyer. They're going to realize it needs a structural renovation. You know, you're going to come back to me. I'm just going to tell you right now, when you come back to me, my offer is going to be 10,000 less and I don't want to hear anything else about it. And then they come back and they say they want the 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 high offer. So I'm not doing it. Go try to get another offer. And I think that standing by your principles is maybe some people think it's jerky. I'm I'm running a business. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm running a business. They may be emotional about it, but like I'm running a business. I'm an investor, and my job is to try to you know make the most money, turn out the best product. So uh, it's all part of it. But I think again, going back to the thing, it's just it's just a mindset of how you want to handle your own business as a person and it'll take you far to adjust your mindset rather than keep adjusting the numbers on a spreadsheet.
1: Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, a lot of the difference is what's between your ears. So I agree. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.